When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, and sometimes it's just very strange, right? Trick or treat, everyone. <laughs> it's beyond reality radio on this uh, trick or treatiest of all nights, uh, Halloween. I hope everybody had a really, really great time. And if that uh, those celebrations are continuing for you, um, that's awesome as well. But we have a great program lined up for you as we try to uh, wind up our monster week with your monster stories. We are going to uh, feature a number of our listeners who have contacted us ahead of time. We might have some room for calls later if you if you decide you want to share a story. But um, we have a bunch of listeners who have submitted stories to us, and they're going to share those stories with us, whether it's a UFO, a Bigfoot, a ghost story, whatever it happens to be, just an encounter with the paranormal. That's what we're going to do in the second part of the program. But the first part of the show is actually something that's very, uh, I don't know, close to my heart, I guess. I've always been a Harry Houdini fan. I think the story of his life is fascinating. I think the story of his professional career is also fascinating. I believe that um, he is one of the greatest showmen of all time, and it's not just because of what he was able to do with his tricks, but also because of the way he knew how to promote himself. We've all seen uh, film footage of him hanging, you know, upside down, you know, 10 stories up, whatever it happens to be, getting out of a straitjacket or being put in a trunk, thrown into a river. I mean, things, the things he did were were pretty amazing. Um, But he also knew how to promote himself. But he also had a connection to the mystical. Um, The mystical and the afterlife. He was a, a staunch searcher for answers. After his mother died... Harry Houdini set about finding a way to contact her, and he saw many, many mystics, psychics, mediums, whatever they claimed to be, who all of whom said they could contact his mother for him. And he set about proving they were all frauds. And I think almost every single one of them he saw, that's what he ended up doing, proving that they were a fraud. But when it came his turn to die, he... They had one more trick left up his sleeve. And he worked out an uh, an arrangement with his wife. He said, if I can come back in any way, if I can communicate from the other side, I will. And here is what I will say. And they had a code that they had put together. I think it's a code they had actually used back in vaudeville or during their early days in their career. And he said, "I I will, these are the words that I will say to you if, in fact, a medium can reach me. And starts telling you that they're communicating with me. So our guest in the first hour of the program will be Professor Slim King. He is considered to be the world's foremost expert on the afterlife, the life after death of Harry Houdini. He says that message was delivered. There are documents that indicate it may have been delivered. And uh, he's going to tell us all about the story. So we're going to we're excited about that. And then, like I said, in the second hour of the show, we will feature your paranormal stories. I don't know how long I can I can wear this. Those of you watching on our YouTube channel, I don't know how long I can wear this because my headphones won't fit under the hat. (laughs) So it's a bit of a challenge because they keep wanting to fall off. Um, But I did want to open the show, at least in the spirit of things. And uh, if I had a good costume available, I would have worn that. But I didn't. It was last minute, as you can tell. Um, Let's see. Uh, Stop by the YouTube channel. If you haven't seen it yet or haven't subscribed, we'd love to have you do that. You'd be able to catch something as silly as what I'm wearing right now. Just go to YouTube and search for JV Johnson. Subscribe to the channel. Share it with your friends. There are about 400 back episodes of Beyond Reality Radio Radio there. Plus, we stream live if you can't pick up the program on a radio station in your market, then the YouTube stream is a great way to participate. Plus, 
there is a very vibrant chat room, which is now saying all sorts of funny things about the way I look, which I expected. Um, you can't blame them. So do that. Also like us on social media, Facebook, it's Beyond Reality Radio, and also J.V. Johnson. Let's go to break because we have a lot to get to tonight. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be right back. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. We've got a really great program lined up for you tonight. In the second hour of the show, we're going to feature your paranormal stories. Bigfoot, UFO, ghost, whatever it happens to be, you're the star in the second hour of the program. The first hour, however, we're going to talk about a story that that has always, always fascinated me, and that's the story of Harry Houdini. Our guest in this first hour is Professor Slim King. He's had an interest in the supernatural his entire life. He's explored many paranormal events and conducted hundreds of psychic and other simply weird experiments. He's written several ebooks about the basics of numerology, palmistry, pendulums, dreams, dice, and other strange methods of telling the future. Slim actually predicted the Belmont Stakes Superfecta just a short while ago. And we never have an idea what he's going to predict next, but he's here with us tonight to talk about Houdini. Slim, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. This is going to be a great conversation. It is a fantastic evening. It's the anniversary of the 93rd anniversary of the passing of Houdini. That's it. That's what it is. 93 years. What, was 1926? Is that what we're talking about? Yes, 1926. Uh, October 31st. How, what is it about Harry Houdini that 93 years after his death, you and I on a nationally syndicated radio show are still talking about him? There are a lot of factors that play into this. I mean, he was the greatest uh, guy at his time, but you think that he would just fade away after that was gone. You right. don't hear much about Thurston or any of the other guys that were equally as popular during that time. Yeah, and there's yep. been you know others since that have done what some may consider more amazing feats of magic or trickery, however you look at it. Um, right. But something about Houdini, and I think the the secret to it has to do with the way he was able to self promote. Yes, he was a, a really really good self promoter, and then part of it has to do with the Houdini code. Strange enough, this uh, afterlife experiment that he had with his wife Beth. Yeah, and we're going to get into that, because that is a fascinating part of this story. But before we do, um, when Houdini died in 1926, now he died on Halloween of all nights. Um, Mm -hmm. How old was he at that point? Oh, boy, 48, I think. I I can't remember exactly how old he was when he died. But he was in his 40s. Yes, he was in his 40s, and he was in excellent shape, really, really good shape. He was a swimmer. He worked out. He would let these people punch him in the stomach uh, yeah. after he insulted them or what, however he, you know, uh, got their dander up to really get the promo going on his gigs. So uh, he was in really, really good shape. Well, was, I mean, he, he, a very odd that he would die. Yeah. And like he could that. hold his breath. Uh, you know, I don't know what the, know what the figure was, but certainly a lot longer than most people could. And he would practice that. Um, he as you said, he was, he was uh, completely uh, in, in shape from head to toe, worked out all the time. And he had to be in shape to be able to perform um, the, the tricks, I guess, that he performed. He had to be in great shape to do that stuff. Right. It was just amazing. I mean, the physicality of what he had to do, uh, you know, to break out of the jail cells and, and all that. And, and he would, uh, you know, they'd strip him down to next to nothing, you know, and he was pretty buff. And that was kind of the thing that, you know, there'd be pictures of him and he's, you know, 80 per, 90% naked, you know, but he's all in chains and stuff. So it's got some real overtones, you know, that uh, make you think, wow, he really had an, an ingenious advertising scheme going on. Yeah, so let's um, talk about his death a little bit here, because when we um, have seen the movies, you know, what we see generally is that, uh, you know, he's in his dressing room and he turns around and somebody gives him an unsuspected punch to the stomach because he used to do that as part of his his trick. He had such strong stomach muscles, he could tighten them up and take a punch, but he wasn't ready for it. He takes the punch. Um, He ends up going to the hospital a little while later and he ends up dying there. Is that actually how it happened? 
that is not really uh, what the consensus is today, is that he had appendicitis, and he died of peritonitis uh, from a, a, a ruptured appendix. Now, whether it had ruptured before he got hit or after he got hit, uh, I think it was just probably inflamed, and it really hurt him when he got hit. Uh, but they did pay his wife double uh, on the insurance back in the day, but the doctors today say that's not how it happened. He died, I think, about 10 days after he got punched, wow. and uh, the seven of those were in the hospital. He was, like, he was really tough. It took him a long time to pass away. They didn't have uh, the kind of medicines we have today, and, and uh, there was no way to stop the infection. So they had two or two, maybe three operations, I think. Oh, wow. So he um, he went into the hospital about a week before Halloween then. Right. So it would have been. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like the 24th of October. Uh, and, mm-hmm. then he, and then he died on Halloween, which is ap- very fitting because Houdini had a life full of curiosity of and connection to the afterlife and mysticism. Tell us a little bit about his fascination with that. Well, he uh, he was in Europe when his mother passed away and he was. I don't know if you could say he was a mama's boy, but he had his mother with him almost all the time. He just really loved his mom. And she passed away uh, while in, uh, here in America while he was performing in Europe. And he said the day that he, had, he saw a spirit of her the night she died. But he just said it was a coincidence. He, he would always rack these things up to being coincidences. And... Uh, so he was really, really interested in it. He, he uh, always wanted to contact her, and he always uh, wanted someone to tell him what was going on. And Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's wife did just that. And Houdini was crying one night after she had done some automatic writing. Uh, and he, she said it had come from her, his mother. Now, just for those of you who don't know, automatic writing basically is a process by which the writer, the person with the holding the pen, goes into a bit of a trance, and supposedly uh, the someone from the spirit world connects to that person, and the the words flow through that person and just flow to the hand of the person holding the pen, and that's where the words come from. Yes, and they, they often they write it right they write it backwards because it comes through like a mirror. You have to look at it in a mirror to actually read it. So uh, she did that for Houdini, and it moved him. But did he ultimately believe that came from his mother? Well, later he said that had to be just some coincidence, and she was reading me and something like that. And uh, he was pretty good friends with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. There's pictures of them, uh, the Houdinis and the Doyle family at the beach and stuff like that. They kind of hung around, and they were getting into radio because radio was big at the time. And both of them had their, you know, were coming from their different angles. Uh, but uh, a little while after that, he didn't have much to do with uh, Sir Arthur, and uh, and they say it was because of this event of where the wife did the uh, the channeling of her, his mother. So it was Houdini's mother's death that really made him start paying attention to this, and he was so desperate to make contact with her in the afterlife that he would go to medium after medium after medium, and it didn't take very long for him to recognize that he was actually parading through a bunch of hoaxes and frauds, and he kind of made it uh, a bit of his life's work at that point to expose these people. Right. Well, J.B., what uh, a lot of people don't know, and some of the movies have hinted at it, but uh, at the very beginning of his career with Bess, they pretended to be spiritualists. And they had a spiritualist stage show that they traveled with. So he knew all the tricks that these mediums, the fake mediums, uh, pseudo-mediums were using. He knew all of those. And so it was pretty easy for him to go in, and if uh, they were using these tricks on him, he would, he would know what was going on. And he would expose them very, very yes. publicly, too. Yes, he would expose them, but... Um, Towards the end of his career, his career was waning a bit, and so he started adding this spiritualism uh, part at the end of his show, after the escapes, and he would go out into the community sometimes and expose these guys. But what people didn't know is that he had others that had went out before and kind of fixed the situation. If they couldn't figure out what the medium was doing that was... uh, wrong or 
uh, fakery, they would plant something on them. They would put something in the couch and pull it out, and it's an incandescent gown or something. So he he was kind of cheating. If you read the uh, conversations with Kreskin, he kind of describes what was going on. We have just about a minute here, maybe a minute and a half before we have to go to break. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk specifically about what happened after Houdini's death, because that's really where the story gets very, very interesting. We're also going to talk a little bit about you, Slim, the work you've done. You've done a lot of stuff. You continue to do a lot of things. But before we get to that, would you say Houdini was the greatest magician of all time? Uh, No. No. Would you say he was the standard by which all magicians at this point measure themselves? He he was the most popular magician of all time. Uh, People talk about him now, but uh, David Copperfield has probably played to many, many more people than he did. Right. Um, Do you also think that he was a product of the time? I mean, when he was performing, people were, I would say, quite a bit more naive. They didn't have mass media to draw experiences from. They were limited to what they would see in their communities, basically, whether it was on stage or uh, with their neighbors. They just didn't have exposure to the same things that we do today. They were just starting to get into movies. As a matter of fact, Houdini made several movies when it first started. Uh, He could have rivaled uh, Universal or any of them, but he had other interests. He starred in every one of his movies. So they had vaudeville, and then it was turning into these movies, and he was right on the cusp of everything. It, it would have been amazing if he could have lived. Uh, you know, I think he would have set a lot of records that, you know, uh, we'd still we'd be talking about him right now. Was he making those movies in a, some kind of a partnership with Thomas Edison? Or am I, am I off base on that? I, I don't think so. I, I think he tried to get some information. Of course, those guys were always trying to find a uh, scientific thing they could use for a, a trick, an effect. Yeah. Uh, and they were always, you know, talking to those guys. But I don't, I think he financed it all pretty much himself. Gotcha. And he, he did a thing they called the dailies, which they still use now. Uh, and he's the one who invented the dailies, the right. way to super fast process film and take a look at it that night. Tell us a little bit about you. You've had your hands in a lot of different things that kind of uh, circulate around this stuff we call mysticism and paranormal. Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, ever since a small child interested in magic and wondering, hey, is there real magic? You know, is there really something out there that's magic? And so I, you know, started looking at this, reading these books, trying this. And even now, uh, all the things that I've written, I, I still question the things that I'm I've done because I'm learning, constantly learning more and more and more. And um, I, I just, I love it. I think that we need to all get a little spiritual. Uh, you know, I do believe in a, a life after this, and, and I kind of want to be in a good situation when I get there. Let me ask you specifically, because you just said it, but I want to hear it again. Do you firmly believe, 100%, no doubt, in the afterlife? Yes. Is your experience with uh, researching and studying this Harry Houdini incident uh, help uh, firm that belief for you? This really solidified it for me, I think. I started studying this quite a while ago uh, when I found this one document. But did you know that Harry had been cursed by the spiritualists? I remember hearing something about that. Yeah, tell us what happened. Yes. In 1924, uh, he went to a uh, seance, with Mina Crandon, and she was the blonde witch of Boston. And she was very, very famous. She didn't charge anything for what she did. She did these seances. And uh, her spirit guide was Walter, her brother. Her deceased brother was the spirit. And uh, Houdini had built this box to put her, put her in so only her head and her hands could stick out so there could be no funny business. And uh, she got in the box and went into a trance, and then uh, Walter came through, went into a rage, started cussing and swearing at Houdini, and said that Houdini had put something in the box. And they went and looked in the box, and they found that there was this ruler stuck in this box, hidden, as if they were trying to frame her. Like, remember I talked to you earlier about framing up, that they had put something in the box to make it look like she was trying to cheat. Hmm. And so uh, Walter, the spirit, cursed 
Houdini to death. And within two years, Houdini was dead. Wow. So that curse, uh, the spiritualists all knew about it, and they knew it was going on. Houdini used it in his advertising, and then he'd always say, well, uh, you know, if I die, it's, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> it's just a coincidence, even before he died. It was, it's a really spooky situation. Yeah. Yeah, very spooky. So Harry Houdini's laying in the hospital bed. They're trying to do what they can to save him, but it doesn't look good. And he has a conversation with his wife, Bess. What do they say? Yes. What do they talk about? He, they're going to talk about they're going to talk about this afterlife experiment that they'd been working on. Uh, he always wanted to find. He was a skeptic, but he wasn't a pseudo skeptic. You know, he was. He's open minded. He was. You know, prove me wrong. I'll. You know, here's ten thousand dollars. Prove me wrong. He. He was that kind of a guy. And so he and his wife had worked out one of the most, I think it's one of the ingenious afterlife experiments ever that I've ever heard of. And they had a code word, and then they had another word that was code word that they used the secret code. Each letter had a, a different a word that coded that letter to spell out another word. And then this was a two-way code because they didn't, I guess they didn't know who was going to die first. And so she had five words in French that she would say back to him because Houdini wanted to know that if he was on the other side, that he was actually speaking to Beth. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. He had a two-way code. Most people just have one word or something. This was an intricate code that involved about 16 different words. And they decided uh, that uh, whichever one of them had passed away first was going to do anything within their ability on the other side to communicate a message to the other, and the code exactly. was de- and the code was designed to make sure that there was you know the intermediary, the medium, if you will, um, was not able to pull any pranks. Uh, exactly. So yep. and they yeah go ahead they they had devised a um, a code between the two of them, and it was uh, similar but unlike ever, any other code that they had used before. They they said they had used it in uh, vaudeville when they were in vaudeville, but it was just similar. It wasn't the same code. So there's a couple of things here at play. One is the code itself, uh, which may have not, may not have been exclusive to Harry Houdini and Bess. Uh, other people may have had some knowledge of that, but that doesn't mean they would have had knowledge of the message itself, right? That's right. That's right. What did they, it, they would have to know what the code was supposed to spell. They would have to know the secret code word. So, and, uh, yeah, so Harry Houdini passes away. And when do when do do the seances begin? When when do they start trying to make contact with Harry Houdini? Well, the the rumor that when uh, later in uh, 1936 they have what they called the final Houdini seance, and at that time they said they had a seance every year for the last ten years, but that wasn't true. That was just uh, some hype for the movie. Uh, I, as far as I know, they only had like one other seance between. Uh, after 26 to 36, or uh, 29 to 36. So between between 29 and 36, you, you think they only had that final one in 36 and maybe one other? Well, right now, there's uh, as we speak, there's probably 100 right. Houdini right. seances going on around right. the United States <laughs> and the rest of the world. That's right. So after the fact, yes, obviously. So, um, mm-hmm. but did did they start having? Did Bess or or anybody start having these seances immediately after his death, or did it take? Did they wait a year? Was there was there any? Do we have any knowledge of how that started? Right. They they say they did, but every historian that I've ever talked to cannot prove it. They can't prove that they don't know where, when, or anything about any seances other than this one in 1929. Okay, first of all, before we talk about that seance, um, what is a seance? People go to mediums all the time and they get a reading. What's the difference between going and getting a reading versus a full-blown seance? Well, a psychic is someone who taps into your, you know, your psyche. They don't necessarily uh, become a medium. A medium is uh, someone who talks to the spirit world. A medium like a telephone is a medium between you and me, right? And so a medium is someone between you and the spirit world. Uh, a psychic can do your reading. They can look at your tarot cards, 
they can look at you, they can get a feeling about you and this and everything else, but they're not tapping into the spirit world to tell you about what the tarot card means. Okay, so if I go to a medium, and we've had a lot of mediums on this program, and mm-hmm. they will do, they will take calls and they'll do, uh, we call them readings, I don't know if they're necessarily readings, um, for people, and they'll make a connection and they'll pass a message on or whatever, but that's not necessarily a seance, right? Seance is a little more complex. Well, some uh, seances are, are very, very, very different. Um, the seance, uh, some people get 13 people in a circle and they hold hands, and then one of them is the, the medium. Uh, they come, uh, come out of the family circles. Back in the 20s and 30s, there were all these uh, spiritualists. that They were Baptists and Lutherans and uh, Methodists, and on like on a Saturday or a Sunday, they'd get together at somebody's house. Uh, you know, in the middle of the day, and they'd uh, get in these family circles, and one of the guys would be the medium and try to make a contact with their relatives. So is it your belief that that's this, the seance, the, the, the mother of all seances as it relates to Harry Houdini on January 8th of 1929, was that the only really what we'll call officially sanctioned seance by uh, Bess Houdini? No, she did one again in 19... 19- 36 to promote the movie that was coming out. Okay, right. Uh, right. So, but she, what got me started on this whole thing was I found this document that she had signed and a lot of other people had signed uh, the day after uh, the seance at her home. All right, on set, up, set, up, yeah, set up the seance for us because this, you know, let us know who's there and what they're trying to do. There is a man, his, his name is Arthur Ford. And he's like the pastor or something of the spiritual church there in New York. And he has been holding seances with his, uh, with his congregation, and they've been trying to reach Houdini. Best Houdini has a $10,000 reward out for anybody that can come up with this code. And they contact her and ask her to take that reward down because they think it's interfering with the, uh, with the communication. So that's the reason that she doesn't pay, uh, pay out when this code is cracked. Um, so Arthur Ford says, I got it. Contacts as somebody from his church contact best. And best says, well, come on over and we'll have the seance here. And so he goes over there. It's in the middle of the day. It's about noon. I think he probably puts on a pair of, uh, a, glasses or a towel or something over his eyes, one of those little, uh, you know, masks, and he lays down, and he is what they call a trance medium. He goes to sleep. So he lays down on the couch, goes to sleep, and then he contacts his spirit world, and he starts talking to Beth. So that's the kind of uh, seance with a trance medium. That's how that works can happen in the middle of the day. There's nothing spooky. People aren't really holding hands or nothing. He's just laying on a couch communicating with the other side. And as he's doing this, and as he's communicating to Bess, he is is communicating words from uh, allegedly Harry Houdini. Does he give her the code? Yes. He gives her the code exactly verbatim. Um, uh, He has a spirit guide over there. It's kind of like the operator for a telephone service or something. That's who he's communicating with, and that guy is communicating with Houdini. So it's kind of a three-way thing. That guy's telling right. the spirit, and the spirit's telling uh, Arthur Ford. And so then Arthur Ford's just relaying this message across. And so he says, um, Rosabelle, answer, tell, pray, answer, look, tell, Answer, answer, tell. And she knows that that spells out the word believe. Wow. And so, and then she says, oh, and then she's like crying and everything. And then she says, then she says her five words in French, which I don't know exactly. I don't speak French, but it means I pull the veil back like as such. And that was one of her lines out of uh, when she actually was on stage with Harry, working with him as his assistant at the very beginning. So, so, we, know so that, we know that her reaction was emotional. We have a kind yeah. of account of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. She, would, she had suffered a fall, and so she was kind of laying down on a couch, too. 
she was just laying there. Uh, in a way, you know, she always, in my opinion, was a, if she was hurt or something, she really dramatized it. She really pushed it, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and I think she'd fall down, she'd fallen down like a week earlier. And so she was still laying there in bed like she was all, but she was up the next day and signed off, signed off on all these uh, documents. Yeah. So tell us about these documents. Why are they important? Uh, this is this is really what got me started when I saw this, and then everybody said, "No, that's not real. That's just a fake document." And then they, then when I said, "No, it's a real document," well, well, that's not her handwriting. Well, no, my wife's a handwriting expert. It's she. That's her handwriting. Well, that's those aren't, really aren't the people that were there. Yeah, that they, they were there. And so, uh, do you want me to read what this says? It's yeah. a little document. Yes, read the document. Yes, and actually, this is a photocopy. They made these photostat copies back in. 29, right? They took a picture of it and just and sent these pictures around, and they sent this thing to everybody. And this particular one was sent to Mina Crandon, the blonde witch of Boston. Oh, wow. From this guy named Francis uh, Fast. And he later writes a book about the whole thing. So he gets this photocopy and sends it. This is New York City, January 9th, 1929. So that's the day after. She says, regardless of any statements made to the contrary, I wish to declare that the message in its entirety and in the agreed-upon sequence given to me by Arthur Ford is the correct message pre-arranged between Mr. Houdini and myself, signed Beatrice Houdini. And here's the really interesting part. It is witnessed by this guy named Harry R. Zander, Minnie Chester, and John W. Stafford. And that's the icing on the cake, because Harry Zander is the number one reporter in New York City at the time. He works for the United Press, so uh, like the Associated Press. When he writes an article, hundreds and hundreds of newspapers get that article. He's one of the top guys, and he was an award-winning guy. His son was, and his grandson, even after him, were... uh, award-winning uh, reporters. Slim, this is really uh, obviously very convincing. And um, d- where did you discover the document? Well, I was just, uh, I think I was on the Magic Cafe or something, and I was talking to these magicians, and they said something about Harry, and I just did a Google search, and I saw this thing, and I read it, and I said, what the heck is this? And that's when they all started backing off uh, of the thing. Uh, and the the bottom guy is John W. Stafford. He's the last guy to sign it. He is the head of the Scientific American, the magazine. Yeah. They had a $2,500 uh, reward for someone who would do this. And Arthur Ford didn't take anybody's money. Well, He just didn't take anybody's money, and he just uh, delivered it. And then I think he went on tour, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, just kept doing what he was doing because he was famous then. And what people don't know is if you go to um, the very top, uh, Houdini's ghost on Facebook, uh, the Des Moines Register that, that day has huge headlines. that says, Houdini proves soul immortal. And on the 9th of January, there were hundreds and hundreds of newspapers that had really, really similar uh, headlines on the front page that Houdini wow. had come back. And they were certain that it was genuine. When we talk about this um, this seance in 1929 and Bess Houdini's uh, statement that uh, the message was delivered and it was accurate and it was all the right things, um, that whole thing does not come without controversy, though, does it? Oh, she lost almost every one of her friends uh, that uh, in, within the month. And she wrote a great letter to Walter Winchell, uh, of all people, explaining her situation, that she was uh, telling the truth, even though everybody else was saying it couldn't be because they were real skeptical of it, but she wasn't lying. So, Was there, so. Was there a, a point at which, and I'm just doing this from memory here, I didn't, I didn't really research it, but was there s- some controversy as to whether or not that message may have been printed somewhere? They said that the uh, code was printed in a, a book that was printed a year earlier. Uh, but that was a numerical code gotcha. that she and uh, Harry had used 
uh, for a coin. They gave the date of a coin. She would guess the date of a coin, and he would code it to her. And in that code, answer, uh, uh, like pray was number one, and answer was number two, and mm-hmm. say was number three. Mm-hmm. So that code had been out there, but they never ever said what uh, the, message? the Houdini code had no numbers in it. Right. That one instance that Be- uh, Bess Houdini has testified or certified uh, she received the message, was that the only time that that connection was made as far as you know? Well, what I, uh, yes, I think that was the only time. I think she thought that was going to happen all the time. And I want to yeah. clarify what we had talked about before about you asked about if it had ever been written down. Right. Well, they had a $10,000 uh, reward and they did write down the code in its entirety and they put it in the merchant's bank in a safety deposit box. And I think that's where they went the next day on the ninth after the seance. Because she said, I will take you and we'll open it up and you can see for yourself. And I think they actually signed that document at the bank. At the bank while they were looking at the code that had been stored there. Right. So to go on it, all they had was what Beth had told them at the seance. This is the number one reporter. This is the guy from the Scientific American. So they go with her and she brings it out of the vault and opens it up, and, and it's exactly what she said. And so they had that there uh, for anybody who was trying to get the $10,000 to prove right. right or wrong. Right, right. So they had backed up their plan, and uh, in 2011, they actually found it. They found, uh, they found the document? They found that document. Wow. Uh, and uh, Magic Magazine wrote an article called Believing in Roosevelt uh, in December. Uh, of 2011. So they had found it in Texas. It was in a lawyer's, you know, a bunch of lawyer's stuff. And they went through there and the guy goes, oh my gosh, this is the Houdini code. And uh, and it's on display at some college there now. That's pretty amazing. Um, we're kind of out of time here, but this is a fascinating story. I appreciate you telling it for us and uh, giving us the nuts and bolts of the whole thing. You're up to a lot of stuff. Where can people find out what you're doing? Maybe uh, check out some more of your work. Um, seethedead.com is a good place to go. Um, it's Jim Callahan's site and it's a pretty good site and he, he adds me onto it. I don't really seek a whole lot of stuff. You can go to Houdini's ghost on Facebook or, uh, professor Slim King on there. Um, great. But I I just like to do research and I, I love talking on the radio. My (laughs) hobby is doing magic on the radio so sometimes we should try that sometime well you know what that sounds like a great idea you've been in contact with my producer so we'll have to set something up listen slim slim it's been fascinating have a great rest of your halloween night thanks for being here and we will definitely have you back on yeah it's all saints day let's go before we start taking the calls um i did want to mention that uh it's kind of a last minute thing but i'm going to be in uh, the cleveland ohio area over the weekend at an event called retro invasion weekend it's at the west lake ohio doubletree hotel i'm going to be there friday through sunday i'll uh, be there with jason lively you know him from european vacation and night of the creeps uh, plus he's done a bunch of other stuff so if anybody's in that area look forward to seeing you there all right so one of the things that we like to do on this show is connect and communicate with people who have actually experienced the things that we talk about Because not everybody that we have on the program has actually experienced what they may be an expert in. And uh, we have a lot of listeners that have had their own experiences. And we're going to spend time tonight for the rest of our Halloween broadcast talking about that. So we're going to go to the phone lines. And our first um, paranormal experiencer is Carrie from Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Carrie, welcome to the program. Great to have you on. Hi, good evening. How are you? Terrific. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to do this. A lot of times these stories can be very, very personal and very emotional. I'm not sure if yours is either one of those. Um, But why don't you go ahead and tell us what happened to you? Okay. The um, Honestly, I have been skeptical. I have never... I've been actually petrified of paranormal until I was 23 when my grandmother passed away in 2001. When we had um, the burial uh, that night, she had come to me in my room, and she was in the corner of the room in the dress that we had buried her that 
I know that she never owned because we had to buy that at the funeral home. Wow. And she, yeah. And I was, um, I sat up straight in bed and I was like, okay, I'm dreaming. This is not real. But she clearly said to me, she said, I have something for you. I need you to um, make sure you protect it and make sure that you keep it with you. And um, I, needless to say, I did not go back to sleep that night. And my dad had brought in jewelry from her the next morning. And I have a pair of her white gold and yellow gold earrings that I wear only on special occasions. And I wore them for my wedding. And and I know that she was with me. And it just um, made me more open to um, to know that there's greater things on the other side that we don't understand. Um, when I started at working at Brownsville Hospital at a local hospital two years later, um, we more than I had experienced the same apparitions and the same experiences, um, there were a lot of employees that had the same things that I had done. Uh, we were working on the psych ward, which, you know, as a lot of people know, people don't sleep at nighttime. Yeah. <laughs> on the psych ward, they don't sleep at night, and it's normal. Um, I was not allowed to um, leave the middle of the hall because there had to be somebody there at all times. And we had a patient that was actually very ill um, while the other two nurses were taking care of another patient. I was sitting in the middle of the hall and an ice cold wind went right through me and I was not able to get up out of the wow. the middle of the room. And I was, And then two minutes later, as soon as they came out of the other room, I said, okay, we have to go in that room. And the patient was deceased. Oh, wow. Carrie. So obviously Carrie, that was Carrie, the soul coming through me. Yeah, let me, let me <laughs> just, let me just tell you something very, very quickly. And then I've got to move on. But uh, um, when my mother passed away, she was in the hospital. She'd been in the ICU for four days and I sat with her the whole time. And um, the morning that she ended up passing away, I was standing next to her bed, holding her hand, watching the monitor. You know, you watch all the numbers, you know, what's happening. And when it, you know, when it, the end came, I was standing there and a cool breeze out of nowhere. I'd been there for four days, did not feel the breeze one time. A cool breeze came across my face and it it almost brought me to tears and it almost still does because I knew exactly what was happening. Carrie, thank you much for so much for sharing that story. Let's go to um, Chris. Chris is in Cash, Oklahoma. I think I want to live in Cash, Oklahoma, Chris. I like <laughs> that name. Nice town. <laughs> I like that name. I like living here. Chris, what what what's your story about? Well, I I lived next door to my grandparents whenever I was a kid, and uh, when my grand or before my grandfather passed away, uh, I had a car that broke down, and it broke down for a couple of days, and my grandfather got tired of it sitting there, so he made me go out there work on it with him. Well, after he passed away, I had bought a truck, and uh, it ran good for a while, and then one day it broke down. And it sat there for a couple of days, and I was asleep, and in my dream, my grandfather came over and said, hey, get up and let's go fix this thing. And I remember in the dream that uh, we went out there and we worked on it. And this is a time that I had sleep apnea really bad, and I hardly had any dreams because I wasn't getting right. uh, deep sleep to, right. you know, actually dream. Yeah. So it was kind of weird for me to have that dream. When I woke up, I forgot all about it until I walked out. And uh, I usually walked past the truck to get to my other vehicle I had. Well, I noticed the hood was popped up, you know, like it, you just pulled the hood latch and it popped up. And uh, I thought that was kind of weird. And I remember the dream. Well, I thought that was kind of weird. So I got in it and it started right up. Wow. Yeah, and uh, it, I never had any problems with it ever again. Wow. So, do you think? Do you think that maybe uh, your grandfather was directing you, and you actually did something in your sleep, or do you think there was something more mystical going on, and you just happened to be aware of it in your dream? Uh, I don't know. It just got me more interested in paranormal. I don't sure. think I really did anything in my dream because you know I didn't have. Uh, the marks of grease and everything else on my hands. 
Yeah, you, you know, would, you would have noticed that. Away real yeah. Easily. yeah, you would have noticed that. Wow, that's a great story. Um, did your grandfather ever appear to you in any other way after that? Uh, I would only uh, have brief dreams of them coming back from uh, like a vacation because they like to go places, and uh, I always just felt like they were, you know, just visiting, yeah. stopping by and making sure everything was okay. Right. Well, that's a great story, Chris. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, and um, good luck to you, and uh, I'm glad you're now on the believer side of things. Let's go to Terry. Terry is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hi, Terry. Welcome to the program. Hi, JV. Thank you for being willing to sh- willing to share your story with us. Uh, is your story ghost-oriented? Yes. Uh-huh. Tell us the story. What happened? Well, back in 1982, December 1st, my husband and I... Um, we had just moved to uh, East Tawas, Michigan. That, there used to be a Worsmouth Air Force Base up there. My husband was a uh, Army recruiter. But we moved into this house. It was a tiny little house, maybe 700 square feet. And um, we met the landlord there, and the house was furnished. And he um, asked if he could leave the furniture in the house. He was renting it for his aunt, who had moved out. She'd just taken her personal items, and that was all. And we were only married uh, maybe three years, and I had a one-and-a-half-year-old son. And so we moved in, and the first night we were there, my husband went to bed because he had to go to work the next morning, and my young son went to sleep, and I was unpacking things, and the kitchen area's kitchen living room were together. I was getting tired, and I thought I'd lay down on the sofa for a little bit, you know, rest my ass because I was kind of tired, but I want to get stuff done. When I was laying down, I heard things moving around, and I thought my husband got up and walked out and was looking for something. And when I opened my eyes, there was a an old man standing next to me wearing a flannel shirt, the suspenders, and he had one of those tubes in his nose, you know, like... Uh, oxygen? Oxygen tube? Yeah, an oxygen mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And he was looking at me. He kind of looked confused, and I, I was just staring at him. And I could he, he really wasn't solid, but he wasn't... You know, you could tell it was the, the colors and everything. Well, I closed my eyes. And I opened him again, and when I opened him again, he had his face right next to my face. Oh, wow. Just a couple inches away. Wow. And I closed my eyes really tight, and I don't know if I said uh, to go away or I don't want to see you or something. And I just laid there with my eyes closed for the longest time, and when I opened my eyes again, he was gone. So I went to bed, got up in the morning, and told my husband what happened. He didn't believe me. But told him what happened, and I, I said, I think someone died in this house. And he goes, no, nah, no, nah, I don't think so. So we went down to the uh, landlord's house after he got off work that day, and he invited us in. And he said, um, he came in, and I wanted to tell him what happened. And I said, did someone die in this house? And he goes, why? And I started telling him the story, and I was looking around his house, and he had a fireplace on the mantle with pictures on it. And uh, as I was telling what happened, I pointed out a picture, and there was this old man, and he was wearing a flannel shirt, kind of like what he was wearing. Right. And I said, that man, right there, that's the guy I've seen in your house. And he turned white, and he goes, that's my uncle. He died uh, in that house. He said he went to the mailbox one day. He was coming back, and as soon as he came back in the house, he had had a heart attack and had died. And he goes, and that's the reason my aunt moved out, because she kept seeing him, and he kept turning on the TV. Oh, wow. Wow. So, but he he looked at us, and he says, look, he says he was a very nice man. I don't think he would, you know, cause any harm or anything. If You know, I understand if you want to move, but we never did. We stayed. And uh, I didn't see him anymore. I guess he decided I didn't want to see him and he wasn't going to show himself. But we could hear things move around in there at night. Right. And sometimes this would be put on the counter or things would be put in a different spot. But his bedroom was the same bedroom as my son. And we could hear somebody talking in there sometimes. And my son was giggling and laughing and carrying on. Hmm. So I guess my son liked it too. But yeah. Yeah. Something happened every day that we were in that house, but I never seen him after that particular day. Wow, that's that's uh, kind of the kind of story that sends shivers down my spine. Thank you so much, Terry, for sharing that one with us. You know, that's often a bit of a quandary. Um, you know, the closest uh, people to me that have passed away are my parents, and all rather recently. 
And I'm mixed whether or not I want to open my eyes someday and see one of them standing there. I mean, my heart says, yeah, I'd really like that. But it's also kind of frightening. And I suppose it shouldn't be. I suppose it should be comforting. But I guess it depends how they appear to you would make a difference as to whether or not it's comforting or frightening. We have a little fun. Uh, If you're watching the YouTube stream, you know exactly what we're talking about. If you're not, you should go to YouTube and subscribe to the channel. It's just JV Johnson. You'll find it easily. We stream the show live there in case there's not a radio station in your market carrying the program. We prefer you do listen by a local radio station. That's the best way. Um, But the YouTube channel is there for you if you don't have that option. Plus, there is an archive of about... I don't know, 400 or so back episodes of Beyond Reality Radio on the YouTube channel for your enjoyment. So as we promised in the last hour of this particular uh, show, the Halloween show, we're featuring your paranormal stories. And I just want to tell a quick anecdote here, because one of the things I find most interesting about being in this line of work, particularly the ghost part, is I'll be wherever and someone will come up to me and they'll say, yeah, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I don't believe in it. But let me tell you what happened to me when I was 14 years old. And then they proceed to tell me they saw a vision or a, an apparition of someone that they lost, um, which I always scratch my head because if you had that experience, well, how can you still be a non-believer? And I, a few of our people tonight, the few of the stories you've already talked about, Uh, kind of fall into that category, although they ultimately became believers, it seems. So, interesting stuff. All right, let's go to our next uh, listener caller. This is Aaron in San Diego, California. Aaron, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? I'm great. So, are you enjoying your Halloween? We are. Our neighborhood goes a little crazy, so we handed out about 100 pounds of candy. How much? What? What now? You gave out 100 pounds of candy? About. We were, we stole all of my kids' candy back to give to the last trick-or-treaters that were staggering through. Oh, wow. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> um, so let's talk about your paranormal story. And um, make sure you're right up to your phone so we can hear you real well. Um, what happened? Tell us your story. So story is not really the right word. Um, I just have ghosts. Oh, you They're do? here all the time. They're In your house? Family. In your house? All the time. Mm-hmm. Really? Two that are nice. One that we have to say goodbye every once in a while. Um, actually, my friend left Sage. She must have been a little spooked out tonight. I got to ask her what happened. But I found Sage on my fireplace before she left. So must be trying to Sage the house again. But the other two never leave. But the other one does. He goes away when we tell him to. How long have you been experiencing this in your home? So the first one I had, actually, it's funny because it made a non-believer a believer, was I was a teenager. Um, and we were playing in bed, and I mean, obviously, classic movie stuff. The door started shaking, mm. and the sweater fell off, and we freaked. We ran outside, and we had our buddy and one of our guy friends. We were like, hey, you know, this is what's happening. And he joked back, what do you want me to do? Go after a ghost? And we were like, I don't know, just make it stop. Well, next day, he got my buddy, um, opened the door, stood in the hallway, full-body apparition. My buddy jumped around the corner to scare who he thought was his cousin, and nobody was there. Wow. So that was the first, you know, first one. The, and then, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say, not long after my stepdad passed, was when the second nice one showed up. Um, honestly, probably was in about a week. Mm. You talk about this like it doesn't bother you. It doesn't. Um, actually, the one that kind of creeps everybody out, um, he crawls into bed next to me. He doesn't touch me. He doesn't. That's with anything, but you hear the bed creak, you feel the difference, you feel the change. Yeah, you, you can see feel the that. Move, and yeah. I tell him to stay on his side of the bed and I go back to sleep. <laughs> Do you have any idea who these uh, these spirits are? I believe one is my father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, I had him, for, so he's one I've had since a teenager. Um, I've known my husband since we were in high school together. So I do believe that's him. Um, he only shows himself to guys, and he's quite the prankster. So, oh, and also nicer-looking females. He'll play with their hair, help mess with their jackets, stuff like that. So we do believe that's my father-in-law, and then the other one I do believe is my stepdad, and that's a smell relation. That's, that's my stepdad. <laughs> <laughs> do you, have you had, ever had an opportunity to catch any uh, video or photographic evidence or anything like that? Do, uh, do you bother with any of that? The problem is we don't. We, have, we don't have an Alexa. We don't have a ring or whatever that doorbell is with the little camera thing. Yeah, right. I've never even listened to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> never. 
Wow. So we don't, I mean, I've got pictures of when handprints are left, like on the um, mirror when you get out of the shower. We've got pictures of, actually, my mom, she got it real good. Uh, my mom was like, oh, stop with that. I don't have time for that today. And she left footprints in oil across my mom's blanket. It's like one of those like 70s white like summer blankets that were mm-hmm. on everybody's bed. Right. And yeah, the footprints were clear as day. We all put our foot on top of it to show it wasn't any of ours. And my mom was like, all right, then I take back everything I've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I love I loved your good-natured attitude toward all of this. And it seems like you're taking it in stride. It doesn't seem to bother you. You know what to do if um, if they become a nuisance and you're handling it pretty well. Yep. I mean, now he's actually reacting to TV shows, which is ironic. Um, that's actually what kind of made me reach out to you guys. Um, he reacted to Ghost Nation a few days ago. Oh, um, really? The, the uh, guests, the, like the local, you know, paranormal, not not Jason or any yep. of them, asked, yep. is that you knocking? Mm-hmm. And right on cue, knock, 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 right on our front wooden door. And we have a routine here. We all know, not it, not it, not it. Not saying that we didn't do it. We all know that it was... It was our ghost. Well, no wonder the ratings. Even my nine and seven year olds are used to it. Wow. Well, no wonder the ratings for Ghost Nations is doing are doing so well. We've got a spirit audience as well. That's great. That's it. You guys have reached <laughs> everybody. I love it. That's great, Aaron. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We have to move on so we can get to everybody. But that was awesome. And again, I really, really like the fact that you're taking it all in good stride, and it doesn't seem to scare you, which is the key here. All right, let's go to Clint. Clint is in Johnstown, Ohio. Hey, Clint. Welcome to the program. Hey, JV. Thanks for having me. Thank you for agreeing to tell us your story. First of all, did you have a good Halloween? Uh, yeah, it wasn't bad at all. Um, the weather is pretty crappy here tonight. Yeah. A lot of high winds, rain, a yeah. little bit of snow. Yeah, we're getting so, we're no. getting we're getting the winds and rain here in Cooperstown, upstate New York now, and I'm I you know I know it came through there first. Uh, you say you're getting a little bit of snow now too. It's it's real light. It's just kind of like blowing around a little bit. It's nothing that's sticking or anything like that. It's now, very little. Now, of all the paranormal stories I've heard tonight, that one is the scariest that we're seeing snow here. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, we're at least two months away from this stuff. I would say so. So, uh, tell us your paranormal story. What happened? Okay, so this is last Saturday, um, so a couple nights before that, a friend of mine called me, um, pretty scared uh, from something that he believed that he saw the night before. Uh, he described to me as coming up out of his, his kitchen floor, um, he said it looked like a, a, a bull, but like with, a, uh, with skin on it. So it looked more like a person with two, with two turned down horns. Um, oh, that's coming up out of his floor, Yikes. which is, yeah, well, exactly. Now, I don't know that I really believe he saw that specifically. I believe that he saw something because he was definitely scared. There's no question that he saw something. And he's a guy I've known him since he was born. So I know the type of person that he is. Um, so I researched a little bit. You know, only thing I could find even close to kind of what he was describing was like a, a minotaur type you know, figure. Yeah. And he said that was not it. It did not look human enough in the face, which still kind of freaks me out a little bit because most things like that are, if if you look it up, you depend on what you believe are supposedly like a warrior for the devil. Um, so it's, it was sketchy, but Mm -hmm. you know, he's a good friend. So we're going to go over there and try to investigate. Jeez. Be careful. It was like a, Go ahead. Sorry. I, no, I just said, geez, be careful. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, you got to be smart. You can't be stupid. You got to know what you're doing and just, you know, do it right. Are either of you religious at all? Yes. Well, my wife and I um, are are both Christians. Okay. So you, um, you, you believe in, in the protection for, of the Bible and, and the crucifix and those things? Yes, absolutely. Okay, that's handy. Absolutely. That's good. That's good, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the keys, too, is, you know, don't go into any situation like that and try to be or act negative. You stay positive. Give your vibe off as a positive vibe no matter what. And, you know, that I think, in my opinion, helps a little bit as well. Yeah. Um, but we went over there, and... You know, did an investigation right off the bat. You know, we're asking questions, uh, and I do a lot of burst EVP sessions. So only 
two, three, maybe four minutes long, um, and we review them right away as soon as we're done. So we get in there, and we sit down, talk to them a little bit, um, and I did ask them, you know, if they either one of them uses an Ouija board, um, and they both said no. I felt immediately a little bit better after that. Um, but we're doing EVP. I actually hear a voice with my own ears. Um, we caught it on the recording, and it also hears, you know, you can see, hear me reacting to actually hearing it. Wow. Um, yeah, so I thought that was very impressive, impressive in and of itself. For sure, yeah. So tonight, you know, this is in the uh, afternoon as well, so it's not like it's at night. We're just... It's like a pre-investigation to see if we something we're going to bring you know our whole team in on, mm-hmm. or give advice. What what you know what's the next step? So we do the EVP sessions and stuff like that, and you know caught a little bit here and there. Nothing. I never felt once that anything negative was there. A um, couple cold spots type thing, but it was like not you know didn't feel anything negative. So we're getting ready to wrap up. I do one last session only like a minute and 20 seconds long. And as I'm doing this session, our, my wife and I are sitting on a couch and our legs just get ice cold. We can't really get up. Um, if you look at the thermostat in the house and the furnace was off, so nothing was on or running. You look at the furnace in the house, the temperature went from 68 to 63. And I don't know. 10 seconds or less. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, then it started to lighten up. Um, I asked my wife to go stand in the spot where he claimed that he saw something come out of the floor. Um, so she went and stood in that exact spot that he pointed out. And she said it felt like something pushed her out of the way. Oh, geez. When she got there, turned around, and that happened. She came back, sat down um, next to me. Next thing you know, you know, everything feels back to completely normal, and the temperature goes back from 63 to 68 in a matter of seconds well, as well. Clint, we have about uh, 15 seconds here. What's the final resolution? Have you done any more with this? Uh, I did get another EVP from there. That, that It's a real deep, gargly voice that says, get out. Or, no, oh. I'm sorry, not get out, but give up. Give up. Um, hmm. Yeah, we haven't been there back since. I've been in contact with my friend, so he wants to get my whole team in there. So that's our next step. All right. Well, if you do us a favor, uh, you do have Slick Eddie's contact information um, to set this up. Let us know what happens. If if you get more uh, data or more experiences there, we'd love to hear it. But thank you for sharing that story with us. Let's go to Julie. Julie's in Kentucky. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Hey, did you have a nice Halloween, Julie? Yes, we did. It's a little chilly, but we had quite a few trick-or-treaters. <laughs> did it start out chilly, or, or did you experience this uh, warm, then cold, massive drop in temperature like a lot of the nation did? Yes, it was not very nice this morning, mm-hmm. and then by this afternoon, it was windy, rainy, snowy. It was <laughs> yeah, yeah, crazy, crazy day. Halloween. Crazy day. <laughs> tell, us, tell us your story, Julie. Okay, when I was younger, um, we lived in a house in the country. And um, occasionally I would be playing. I was about eight years old when this happened. Um, You could kind of see, you know, things out of the corner of your eye or, you know, nothing real crazy. But one night I woke up and standing in my doorway was, all I could see was the face. And it was like a bald-headed man. And he had black eyes. And his ears were pointy, and he had, like, all of his teeth were pointy. And it was like he was just standing there staring at me. And, of course, I just I just shut my eyes real quick and and um, just kind of fell asleep back again. But um, it wasn't too long after that that we moved. Um, and come to find out later on, Mother had told me that uh, we had moved because she was afraid of the house. She had been out one night. And Daddy and I were at home, and when she came home, every light was on in the house, and there was music playing, and when she went to touch the doorknob, everything just went silent. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and she came in, and we were asleep, and she didn't tell me this until years later, but once I had gotten married, and we were in our own home, I woke, my husband was working third shift, and I woke up 
and the same thing was in my bedroom again. Same bald-headed, pointy ear, pointy yes. teeth? Wow. Yes. And that's when kind of things started happening around the house. The this, this was a different house or same house? Yes, this was a different, different home. Different house, okay. The little things would happen, you know, just small things would be moved, just, you know, insignificant things that only I would notice or... I would walk by our spare bedroom, and the door would come open. My husband tried to, he's like, oh, it's probably a loose floorboard, and he would try to walk back and forth in the hallway, and it would never come open for him. And just little things, you could hear footsteps. And then finally, I just got scared enough that I contacted my pastor. You know, you don't know whether to reach out to people or not. Right. Sometimes they'll believe you. Sometimes they won't. Exactly. And we prayed about it, and... He suggested that we go through the house and anoint the house with olive oil. And we did that. And we just kind of just things that I felt led to touch, you know, when we would go through the house and we left the living room for last. And I'd had the door propped open. And I was like, okay, he just told me to ask it if it wanted to tell me something. If not, it was not welcome in my home, and now they need it needed to leave. And after that, nothing happened again. So wait a minute. Put us, put us, give us a time context here. When did you have that second sighting of the bald-headed man? How long ago was that? Um, I was probably twenty-two at the time, so it's been about twenty years ago. Okay, and then uh, how long after you had that sighting did you go through this ritual whereby you haven't seen it since? Was it immediately it was after? About no, it was probably about, I'd say, a year and a half later. Things had just gotten to where, like, you'd wake up in the night and the lights would be on, or I knew I had locked the front door and my husband would come home and it would be unlocked. Just little things were starting to happen that I was just getting so scared that I finally reached out for help. Yeah, okay. Uh, we're out of time here, but uh, that's that's another one of those. St- I'm glad it had a res- the resolution it did, and hopefully it stays that way for you, because I don't know if that's dangerous or not, um, but it's certainly disturbing, and I can understand why you'd be concerned about that. But, Julie, thank Absolutely. you. Yeah, Julie, thank you so much for sharing that story with us and calling. All right, thank you. All right, everyone, hope you had a great Halloween. Thank you for being here. Tomorrow night is a best-of program. Monday night we'll be back with Maria Goodovich. Goodovich? Yeah. She's a New York Times bestselling author. We're talking about dogs who can detect cancer, diabetes, and other health concerns from her book called Dr. Dogs. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Have a great weekend. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.